Welcome to West Virginia Talk with James and Jerry. I'm James. And I'm Jerry. And it is Black History Month, February 2022. And uh, we we celebrate Black History Month in West Virginia because, A, we have some pretty famous uh, African-American West Virginians that we herald. And we have friends in the state that, uh, you know, look to these people as uh inspirational role models sure and uh, we're doing this for them too so basically it comes down to we're doing it for ourselves though well you know and it's funny that you just said that because there's a lot of truth to that and i think black history month really gets a bad rap in all honesty yeah it's weird because when we were younger it seemed like a it was more of a thing than it is now right well Everybody goes, why do we have Black History Month and not any other history month? Why? Black History Month isn't celebrated by blacks only. And black people don't celebrate their history one month out of the year. They celebrate their history year long. But That's what, what Morgan it, Freeman said. Right. What it is, is it's just putting an emphasis on a section of history that was overlooked enlarged for a long period of time to kind of really trying to make up ground on time lost of learning about black history and other cultures because of the fact that it was whitewashed for a long time. Well, let's go back in history to 1926. Historian Carter G. Woodson and the Association for the Study of Negro Life and History. We don't use that term anymore, but... uh, it, they announced that the second week of February to be Negro History Week. Now, why the second week of February? I'm not. Wasn't was it something with emancipation? Nope. Nope. Okay. So I'm drawing a blank. It was chosen because it coincided with the birthday of Abraham Lincoln and Frederick Douglass. Okay. Their birthdays were February 12th and 14th. Uh, both of those dates were celebrated by Black communities in in the 1800s. For obvious reasons. So uh, he he put this week together. Uh, he f- deeply felt at least one week would allow for the general movement to become something celebrated annually. So uh, he, he worked on this for about 10 years, and uh, he put it out in a, in a, I guess, a collection of writings called the Journal of Negro History, and he realized that that subject deserved to resonate with a, a, a bigger audience. So if, uh, if you look at the first one back in the 20s, of course, it wasn't met with a lot of fanfare. Right. So he decided to uh, get on board with some uh, educational systems and states. And not many were having anything to do with it. Three states did, Delaware, North Carolina, and West Virginia. Really? Yes. So West Virginia was one of only three states to start celebrating Negro History Week. Now, Baltimore, as the city did, and Washington, D.C. did. Okay. Like I said, when you were going for the third one there, I was really anticipating that you were going to give another state that was actually coastal. You know what I mean? And so that surprised me. Yeah, this one here. And I'm sure it surprises a lot of people. Um, So at at the time of that week's launch, he thought that teaching black history was essential to ensure 
quote, the physical and intellectual survival of the race within broader society. So that's how we got that started. And of course, a week turned into a month. It's impressive how somebody can feel that much conviction and turn a dream into a reality. You always have to be, no matter what it is. It's got to be bittersweet, though, in a way, because... Uh, Woodson's home state of Virginia didn't want to have anything to do with it. Right. So, <laughs> but West Virginia was, of course, West Virginia, the only state created by a president, and it was because of the Civil War. And the region of Western Virginia that was uh, broken off of Virginia during the Civil War, it was broken off because their economy did not fit the rest of Virginia's economy, right, which was agricultural based, mm-hmm. and that required slaves, right. Now let's not kid ourselves. There were slaves in West Virginia, right. but right. during its creation, there were twelve thousand slaves in West Virginia, and that pales into comparison to Virginia's half a million. I'm not making light of twelve thousand. Oh, that's nothing. That's a lot, right? But you see why he separated the states, and, and of course in our talks with some of the counties that we've done, we've discussed the fact that there was divides amongst the people of those counties when they segregated between Virginia and West Virginia. Berkeley and Jefferson County didn't want to have anything to do with their new state. Now, I'm sure a lot of those 12,000 remaining slaves were in those counties. Right. So, all right. So what African-American mountain state residents or... Uh, natives are we going to celebrate today? Well, I think you got to start with J.R. Clifford. J.R. Clifford from Williamsport, West Virginia. If you're not familiar with Williamsport, it is in Grant County, just across the Mineral County line. And of course, when he was born, Grant County was Hardy County. So he was born in Hardy County, Virginia in 1848. And at the tender age of 15, he enlisted in the Civil War. By the time he was 16, he was a corporal, and that's when the war ended. He was only 16 years old. I think one of the cool things about this man's life is there wasn't any schools for black kids when he was growing up. Right. His parents sent him to Chicago to get his education. Right. Now, it's worth noting he was born in a family of free blacks. Yes. So, um, now, he got a degree at Storer College. And if you're not familiar with Storer College, check out the next installment of Black History Month on West Virginia Talk. Storer College was a historically black college in Harper's Ferry, and we'll discuss why it was built in Harper's Ferry next time. So he got a degree at Storer to teach, but he wasn't much satisfied with being a teacher. He wanted to change things. He wanted to... uh, move you know make a a move for his race right and uh you know help the african-americans you know progress in life so he started a newspaper and it was called the pine was it what was it, the pioneer press yes the pioneer press the pioneer press and that was in 1882 that he started that okay oh it was 1882 yeah you're right jerry 1882 right but it was a nationally distributed black newspaper it wasn't just a a local paper or a state paper it was national and it was shut down in 1915 because Woodrow Wilson wanted it shut down 
you know so there was a lot of a lot of suppression during that era in 1915 lots couldn't even you couldn't serve in the military you couldn't hold a federal job then either and and i don't care what people want to claim or say there was not a party for the black people way back when oh i didn't say what party no, <laughs> i know what i'm saying is no <laughs> i'm just making that statement that you you hear a lot of times nowadays people go well the republican party did this or the democratic party did right listen right. there was not a party that was there for the black community sure sure anybody that believes that is believing a lie sure i mean abe lincoln was the first republican president but that was the abolitionist party right okay so um then he's like you know what uh, i think i want to practice law so he studied law and was uh admitted to the west virginia bar association the first black in west virginia to ever do so and that was in 1887 so <laughs> in a short amount of time he goes from corporal in the civil war to teacher to publisher to attorney just in a short amount of time he wanted to keep going up that ladder now he was west virginia's first black attorney yes and the first recognized by the bar right he was also elected to the republican national committee as a delegate that's impressive it's unheard of in the 1800s unheard of um he was a founder of the niagara movement now a lot of people have heard of the niagara movement not exactly sure what it is first of all the niagara name came from niagara falls they didn't meet there they met in canada they call themselves that because of the force that niagara falls has and they wanted to convey that force as uh, a group of black men trying to better their rights for all african americans in the country um, and one of his uh, fellow founding members of the niagara movement was famous civil rights leader w.e.b du bois wow and a lot of people know him as the founder of the NAACP. Right. And we'll get to that here in a minute. So um, I guess what he would be most known for is he was the uh, attorney in this case called Williams versus Board of Education. Now, this was a case in Tucker County. Uh, Carrie Williams. Was it Carrie Williams? Yeah, Carrie Williams. She was a, uh, a public school teacher for black children. So the county came to her and said, look, the white teachers are going to get paid to teach for eight months. We're only going to pay you for five months. And it was then their excuse was there's not as many black children in school. We don't have as much money for them. So we don't have as much money to pay you. We want you to do the same work but we're not going to pay you the same. Right. They were copping out. Yeah. So they, Carrie Williams and J.R. Clifford get together and he says, okay, we're going to fight this, but we're going to go at it from a different angle. Do you have savings? You and your husband, do you have savings? She said, yeah, we, we have savings. And he said, good. I want you to teach the eight months. Get paid for five, but I want you to teach the eight months. When you're done, then we're going to sue the school board. And here's his angle. It didn't matter who was going to be on that jury in Tucker County. 
It could be 12 white farmers that are men. If he argues this woman did the job, but she didn't get paid for it, that's what they would understand. Because back then, there was no teacher's union. Right. She didn't have a contract with the state or the county. It was a a verbal thing that she didn't agree to. So it was a fightable thing. There was nothing in writing that she agreed to teach for eight months and get five months pay. So he said, do it first, then we'll fight for back pay. And she won. Right. It was a landmark case. And this was 50-plus years before Brown versus Board of Education. That's what I was getting ready to say. This was well before then. So how much was uh, three months back pay, Jerry? Um, I'm going to guess not a lot. $121. Holy cow. <laughs> I want to show up for work for a day. <laughs> now, J.R. Clifford's farm, when he was born, his farm was worth $400, and that was a pile of money back in the day. So $121, I guess, wasn't a, a, you know, a minuscule amount. It was. I'm sure it was a lot to oh, back anyone then. back yes. then. Yes, absolutely. Back then, that was prime money you know sure okay so we're going to talk more about the niagara movement and the naacp a little bit later when we talk about another famous black west virginian uh side note J.R. clifford practiced law until he was 85 years old and the only reason he stopped is because he fell down the stairs and died right okay He also, when the Niagara movement became the NAACP, he didn't follow along with it. Why? That I have no clue. I know there was a difference in opinions. What does the NAACP stand for? The National Advancement for the Advancement. And he hated that term colored. He didn't want to be a part of an association that had the word colored in it. Didn't like it. So he said, that's nah, not for me. Right. So another thing about Clifford, he, he lived in Martinsburg and there was a case where he, he was defending someone and he wanted to have some African-Americans on the jury, which in the 1800s, that was unheard of. Now this might've been the early 1900s. I think it was 1910. Um, so, he went to the prosecuting attorney and said, I want to have some uh I want we want I want to interview some of these jurors that are African Americans. And the prosecutor was like befuddled with this. And he actually lashed out at J.R. Clifford and punched him, and J.R. Clifford overtook him and the bailiff had to restrain him. But uh J.R. Clifford got blood on his shirt and he had he kept that shirt as a badge of honor okay wow so whenever that attorney was running for re-election he would get on his bike with that stained shirt that he kept for i guess until his death and he would ride around the county and then hold up that t-shirt and say he did this to me because he's intolerant don't vote for him and he lost in a landslide oh my goodness <laughs> Wow. <laughs> so a lot of people attribute that loss to J.R. Clifford's attempt to sabotage his campaign. Oh, my goodness. So i, I tell you what else I, that I find intriguing about Clifford is that 
that meeting that they held the NAACP in Harper's Ferry, the second meeting, yeah, um, which Du Bois would eventually say was one of the greatest gatherings they had ever had. Well, I mean, they they had a, a Niagara. I think it was the first Niagara movement meeting at Harper's Ferry. Also, yeah, there's a picture of him and Du Bois and uh, several others that, that you know were the founders of the Niagara movement at Harper's Ferry. But one of the cool things they did, all the people that had gathered there uh, for this meeting, is they walked from Storrs College down to Murphy's family farm. Yes. was the relocation site. Forgot about that. John and Brown's quest to, to end slavery. Now, let me see if I get this right. They viewed that farm as hollowed ground, and they took their shoes off. They did. They had us. They took their shoes off and socks off, in honor of that the fact that they found it to be that special of a place, and they held a ceremony of remembrance. Wow! There's another little John Brown story attached to our store college segment, which will be next time. Okay, but we'll get to that.